this class is to give us a very brief intro to what we call worldview. Is there a, a window in the Bible that helps us look around and see different parts of life and culture, history, salvation, and make sense of it in a coherent way? That's worldview. We want to do a very introductory introduction to that. The first thing we'll do, we'll take maybe five minutes. Um, you should each have notes. Get with a couple other intelligent people and pair up and go through those five questions, okay? You get to do one minute on each question. So in five minutes, I'm going to ask you all for what you think are some of the answers to those questions, okay? A couple other people, talk about those five questions on page one. Okay, I know maybe you didn't all get to a thorough answer of all five questions, but let's visit each one of these briefly, and that'll be our lead-in to what Scripture gives us as God's way for us to look at His world. Why did God make the world? Tell me in a sentence. Anybody? For His pleasure. For His pleasure. I like that. Yeah. He's creative. He's creative. It's almost he can't help it. Yeah, he's a, he's a maker. Okay, good. It's for His glory. The, the main thing I hope we'd all see... He has purpose in it, which is profound. Everything's made to a purpose. He puts the grass there in Genesis 1-3 for the animals that are going to show up two days later. The grass is there for a purpose. Okay? Everything's for a purpose, but the ultimate purpose is His glory. Why did He create human beings? It's for His glory, but what else? To bear His image. To bear His image. It's exactly right. Yeah? Did you... To have a creation that has a free will choice. Okay, good. There's choice going on. That's part of the picture. All right. We'll come back to that. And he's a relational God. He wants them to know him and him to know them. Three, what went wrong? Okay, they wanted to be self-sufficient, so they take from the tree of knowledge. That has to do with autonomy rather than relying on God. They refuse the assigned role God gave them. Number four, knowing now that the world is corrupt and cut off from God, why isn't it worse? Here, I did not get my car carjacked on the way to this meeting this morning. I made it here. Okay, Nobody broke into our house last night and mugged Velma and me. We're still alive this morning. <laughs> why aren't we all axe murderers? Tell me. God's grace, yes? Okay, God, we're going to come back to this because it's tied up with the Noah covenant, but basically it's God has committed to preserving His world, even in the face of sin. He doesn't let sin entirely take over. It's there, but it's still God's world. We'll come back to that in a couple moments. The two ways to be a blessing, we'll come back to that because that ties us in with the Abraham promise. So, page 2. This is how we see the world. God made it. That's the most important thing about it. And He made it for His glory. The cosmos, Psalm 19, is a witness. That psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They're saying something. Not only is it a witness, it's a pageant. If you have time... This weekend sometime, go and read slowly Psalm 104. It's about God's creational work and glory. And the psalm almost works like a parade. Okay, if you see a parade, there's different bands and fire trucks and the police officers and everybody marching along. And that's what Psalm 4 is, 104. And it's, it's the creational parade. Nature, trees, animal life 
humans getting up in the morning and going to work. Psalm 104, verse 23. Man gets up in the morning, goes out to his work, and comes back at the end of the day at sundown. That's part of the way God runs his world. So it's all about his glory. And that psalm shows us that the cosmos glorifies God, that's why he made it, by being a pageant. It's like a parade. Psalm one, or Psalm 96, the cosmos, those of you that are in worship will like this, the cosmos is a choir. Do you Study those verses, and there's lots more where they come from, about creation, even inanimate things like mountains and trees and animals singing. I love that. Singing. The cosmos is a choir. The cosmos is a paradigm. A paradigm is like a pattern, a structure of how things work and fit together. And we see this very profoundly in Genesis 1, the six days. As you go through the first five days, we see these pairings, like complementary pairings off between opposites, as it were. So you've got the heavens above, pardon me, pardon me, I mean the waters above and the waters below. You've got day and you've got night. You've got heaven and earth. You've got sea and dry land. You see that's a regular, almost like a refrain in those first five days. When we get to day six, that complementary pairing thing almost like reaches a climax. Male and female. Now, that detail of the text is hugely important for us today in this society, worldview-wise, because we would have to say, in face of the, the controversies swirling around gender, well, hold on, gender is not a sort of incidental, accidental, peripheral concept. Like some people have brown hair, some have blonde. It's not like that. It's an integral part of the plan. Paradigm, capital P, male, female. It's just like heaven, earth, day, night, etc. Land and sea. There's lots more to be said. That's why God made it. He made it for his glory. And before we move on, one very, very important thing. Do underline this in your notes. Letter E, under that first heading, Psalm 86.9, God's creational work includes nations. The nations you have made. God didn't just create heavens and earth at the beginning. His creative work goes on after the beginning because he makes nations. I could chat with you about that one-on-one if you like after, but it's very clear, even the meaning of the word made and whatnot. The nations are part of the plan. Two, This is how we see the world. God reigns through his image bearers. The Hebrew word translated image essentially means reflection. It's what I see in the morning when I look in the mirror, which may or may not always be good news, but it's I see my reflection. God sees his reflection in you. That's what that word means in in Genesis chapter 1. Let them be our image. Now, how at a practical level do we reflect God? Well, the Genesis 1 answer is we reflect him by ruling. Because he is the supreme ruler. Think of ruler with a capital R. He's the ruler. And then we reflect him at his appointment by ruling under his rule. You with me so far? Okay. We rule under the ruler. Let them rule. 
Let's see how this plays out in those early chapters of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 8, we read about the first gardener. The first gardener, you need a capital G because it's God himself, the first gardener, and he plants the Garden of Eden. But in 2.15, seven verses later, he turns that garden that he planted over to Adam. So the, the conclusion we come to, this is all about how humans fit into the big story. Letter E in that part of your outline. God makes, mankind maintains. God makes, mankind maintains. As Psalm 104, as we mentioned, it's a parade of creation across the page. And near the middle of it, verse 23, verse t- uh, Psalm 104 Man gets up in the morning, goes to his work, and returns at the end of the day. That's part of God ruling his world, is in all of us being faithful in our daily vocation. There's a quote there, we won't read the whole thing, it's from George Veith at the bottom of page 2, about, did you ever think about when you say grace over the meal, when you sit down at the table, you say, Lord, thank you for this food. But that food didn't drop out of the sky onto your plate like the manna in the wilderness. Okay, It came to you from Safeway and it got to Safeway from the warehouse and there was a long, all the way back to some farmer and he even couldn't make it happen. God sending rain from the sky. See, he has this long, infinitely complex thing and it ends up with a bagel on your plate. God's doing that. He makes it, but he puts humans in charge of it. It's a precious thing. And the, the meaning of vocation of being active and doing things. We're all called to rule. The way we rule will be different from one person to another. So, for example, the first human vocation in Genesis is farming. Till the earth or work work the ground and keep it. Adam was a farmer. But the Bible never says that the only acceptable vocation for his people is farming. Okay, there's all tradesmen in the in the Old Testament. There's good examples, artists, craftsmen. I know one famous person in the Bible that was a carpenter. Okay, so it, it, it's it's very open ended. It's almost infinite. It's all part of the ruling. But then, as history unfolds, the ruling can take the form of you do whatever you are doing if you do it faithfully and to honor the Lord. This is how we see the world. God reigns through His images. His small r reflections in his world. Three. You're being very patient because I'm going so fast. Bless your hearts. Uh, This is how we see the world. Why we no longer live in the garden and how God, this is so precious, and how God meets us outside the garden. Now you know what? We had no right for him to do that as members of a rebellious race. But he meets us outside the garden. So drop down, we're sort of fast-forwarding here, uh, letter C. Mankind, Adam and Eve, get banned, okay, evicted, driven out. The Hebrew verb there for being driven out is not (laughs) a gentle verb. They get driven out, which is history's first exile. And we're going to see another exile way down the road at the end of 2 Kings when the people of Israel do a replay of Adam and Eve. 
And they suffered the same fate. Adam and Eve had Eden, and God said, sorry, you're not going to carry on like that in my garden. You're out of here. Israel, he gives them the land to replace the garden. Do you see how it fits? But they break covenant over century, century, century. They keep violating the covenant. And God says, here we go again. And it's the same verb for, for drive out in Second Kings it is, as it is in Genesis 3, being driven out. So it's like the, the exile to eat, uh, Babylon. It's like a rerun of Eden. History begins with the, um, the first exile. Genesis 4.8 Outside the garden, to show the corrupting power of sin, it isn't now just Adam and Eve who are cut off from God and subject to the corrupting power of sin. It's their kids. And we haven't gone eight verses in the second cha- fourth chapter of the Bible before we have history's first murder. We all know that. Okay, Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, outside the garden, things are looking mighty grim. However, at verse 25 of that same chapter, outside the garden, God gives Eve Seth. And right just about next door to that verse, it may be the same part of the second verse, same second part of the same verse. People start praying. The end of Genesis 4. In those days, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, what stirred them up to do that? It had to be God Himself just working hiddenly in their hearts. We need God. We need to find our way back to God. It was a prayer movement at the end of the just the fourth chapter of the Bible. And there's something precious there. How healed was Eve from the loss of Abel? You never get healed of a thing like that in this life, really. But God ministered comfort, encouragement, hope. Eve, your life is not over, and I'm going to give you another son. To me, that shows us outside the garden, God will meet us. Outside your garden, God will meet you. Just like he met Eve. Part four. Oh, the, the concluding thing in part three. This is what I call a Gus Conkleism. Gus Conkel was one of our teachers at Prov. He's not there anymore. But he used to say this in almost every lecture he gave when he lectured in the Old Testament. God refuses to give up on his world. Uh, that's best sentence I got at four years at Prov. Was that one? God refuses to give up on his world. Powerful thought. Number four. This is how we see the world. This is how we see the world. Why everything hasn't completely gone to pieces. We mentioned this earlier when we were chatting back and forth. God has set a restraint in his world on the corrupting power of sin. It's there, and it would be a zillion times worse if it weren't for God just being in his world. That's why all of us are not axe murderers. That's why the whole human race didn't destroy itself many, many centuries ago because God's in the midst of this situation restraining the power of sin. Now, two examples in this. Letter C under the part four there. It's about Noah. God's post-flood covenant with Noah. This is a very, very important part of biblical worldview because it comes before Abraham and before the gospel of Christ. Okay, The, the covenant with Noah. And in Genesis 8.22, God promises Noah natural stability. The order of things, the natural world will be stable. So it's that famous 
verse that's been turned into hymns like Great is Thy Faithfulness, Summer, Winter, Seed Time, Harvest. God put that in place. And that's part of God's way of committing to Adam. Your world is not going to completely spin out of control. After summer is going to come harvest season. Then winter, things go quiet. Then spring, a sign of new life. And then summer again. It just keeps going around and around. It's the faithfulness of God right in front of us. The world does not completely go to pieces. When I was in high school, before I got saved... I already had a theological opinion, namely that algebra was of the devil. (laughs) Maybe some of you can can relate to that view. Well, you know what? Algebra is not of the devil. I had to repent of that. It's of God. Okay? The the sciences, chemistry, and the the world's algebra will be the same tomorrow. If you do the, the solutions correctly, it'll be the same tomorrow as it is today. That's God's own stability built into his world post flood. He will not let everything spin out of control. There is natural order. Farmers can plant. Now, back to back, on the heels of the promise of natural order, we get social order. Now, this one, has a, the way it's packaged is a little bit grim, but it's actually very hope-giving. God tells uh, Noah, if anyone sheds the blood of man by him shall the blood of man be shed. Okay? By, by man shall his blood be shed. I mispronounced that. So if I kill somebody, God said to Noah that the murderer, you have to take his life. By man shall his blood be shed. And that, that disincentive, that restriction, the threat of penalty, I know it's controversial today, death penalty, yes, of course, but a restraint, uh, uh, the potential reprisal and payback on sin, particularly murder, is part of what restrains sin in a fallen world. I didn't get carjacked on the way to the meeting this morning. Maybe if somebody saw me on the way and wanted to jump and steal my car, they would have a disincentive of doing that because they know they could have to pay the price. And that potential price is part of God's restraint of sin through social order. Out of that comes Romans 13, much further down the line, about what Paul calls civil government, and Paul then says that civil government is set in place by whom? God himself. God puts civil government in charge. And Romans 13, about civil government, comes right directly out of the Noah covenant. It's all part of our worldview. This is how we see the world. The reason everything hasn't gone completely to pieces. Praise God. Number five. This is how we see the world. Abraham. If there's ever a turning point in the biblical story, it's this. Abraham and God's twofold plan to bless the nations. There's a subtle little, well it's not very subtle, a striking little hint after the flood story, that despite Noah's faithfulness and God's faithfulness and preserving humanity through the ark, all is not well. The sin virus does not yet have a cure. And we see this in that story that maybe some of you 
had your kids ask you when they were very young and you were reading them children's Bible stories, Mommy, why is Noah lying there with no clothes on and he's stone drunk? Why, why is that even in the Bible? Okay, It's in the Bible to show us that the flood and the ark notwithstanding, the sin virus is very much still up and running. You with me here? Okay, The sin, sin needs a cure and the ark is not the cure. Well, we're coming to that because after Noah, God then sets out to cure the sin virus by reversing the damage Adam and Eve did. And that is what he commits to do through Abraham. It just begins with Abraham and it climaxes with, with Jesus. We give you all the references there in those first few points of how it begins with Abraham, climaxes with Jesus. Go over to the last page. We have this chart. The Abrahamic promise is a promise of blessing. It's a promise of blessing. And again and again and again, as you make your way through both Testaments, we see that this uh, promise of blessing is twofold. It's two-sided. So there's a temporal side in other words, blessing and help and whatnot that is very legitimate and real and appreciated, but it won't get you into heaven. Okay? But then parallel with that is the eternal blessings that come through Abraham and through his descendant, Jesus. So let's look just at a few of the examples in the temporal blessing part of this table, this chart. <clears throat> one of my favorites, and it's the lead-off one, first in, in Genesis 41:57, Abraham's great-grandson is instrumental, uh, Joseph of course, is instrumental in saving many, many thousands of people, most of them Egyptians, probably hardly any of them who have a true knowledge of the true God. He saves them from starvation. If it, if it hadn't been for Joseph, famine would have wiped out untold thousands of people. Do you see that's a temporal blessing? When they came to Joseph to get food, they got food. Praise God. That's a good thing. Now, eating that food he gave them didn't get them into heaven. But it was a blessing. It, was, it's, it has value to do that. Famine relief. World vision. All that. The stuff that Dave and Lynn are doing in Africa. Some of it, at one level, is a temporal blessing. But it's a legitimate temporal blessing. And there's biblical precedent that God's work in his world through the Abrahamic promise in many cases takes the form of temporal blessing. Psalm 105. Joseph, we see him there teaching wisdom to whom? To the elders of Egypt. An amazing thought. And then parallel with that, the next one, Second Chronicles 9.23, is King Solomon, many, many, many generations down the line. Solomon's doing what Joseph did. Solomon's giving wisdom seminars for the kings of the nations of the earth. And these guys, these kings come from miles and miles and miles to sit at Solomon's feet and learn how they can be better kings. Temporal blessing through Abraham and through his descendants. I love 1 Kings 4, the next one. Through Solomon, again, a love of learning. It says he, he studied different kinds of animals and plants. He was a scientist. And that infection for the love of learning and even the foundational early seeds of science came through Abraham's descendants. It's an amazing thought. This school is partly dedicated to that same spirit. Eternal blessing. You can read those other examples under temporal at any time. Now, of course, the most important of the lot is the 
the eternal blessing, and that begins not in the New Testament, but in the Old, as far back as Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. This is God speaking directly to Abraham. He's still called Abram in this chapter, not Abraham yet. And he makes them an amazing promise. There's a a theologian I like called J.I. Packer, and he calls this promise, which I'll quote in a second, the moving van promise. The moving van, like the moving van where you pack everything inside of it. Okay, And Packer calls 17.7 the moving van promise because all the other promises God gives humanity are already contained in Genesis 17.7. And it says, I, God speaking to Abraham, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now chew on that for a bit. I will be God to you. In a lot of English translations, it says, I will be your God. The Hebrew doesn't have the word your in there. It doesn't say your God. It says God to you. It's an interesting way to say it. But that's how it it reads in the literal. So think for a minute. Okay, what all is involved in God being God? Now you could ponder that for a thousand years. Okay, what's involved in God being God? Well, God says everything that's included in me being God, I'm going to be that. What's your name, brother? Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Okay, I couldn't see your name. Bruce, God's saying to you, everything that mean, is involved in me being God, I'm going to be that to you. Now that's a potent promise that God gives Abraham. Now, th- that's not the end of it, however, because in the second part of the very same verse, God continues and he says, and to your descendants after you. Now, fast forward up to Galatians chapter 3, I think it's verse 29. Paul is writing to a thoroughly, pretty much 100% Gentile church, and he says, if you belong to Abraham, which, pardon, pardon, if you belong, I said that wrong, if you belong to Christ, you Galatian Gentiles, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Wow. And that you might not have one drop of Jewish blood in you, but Paul says, through Jesus, you're Abraham's seed. Now then you hook that one back to Genesis 17, 7, and the moving van promise is true for you. Do you hear? This is, this is nuclear. This is so big. It's a powerful thought and something to, to hold on to. Genesis 17, 7. Skip down one. Ruth 1, verse 16. Early signs that this is not exclusively for ethnic Israel. Because we see this destitute, grieving, Moabite widow trying to follow the only friend she has on earth, whose name is Naomi, saying, can't I come with you? Can't, no, Ruth, go back to your people. I've got nothing to give you. Please. And she, you know, it's a great scene there, Ruth 1. And Naomi physically holds on to Naomi. She, or Ruth physically holds on to Naomi. She won't let her go. Why is that scene in the Bible? early on. This is right after Judges, one of the darkest parts of the whole Old Testament. Judges. Right after that we see God at work and he's welcoming Gentiles into the fold. They can become part of Israel. Four generations later, we've already mentioned great-grandfathers. Well, now we have a great-grandmother because Ruth, she does indeed get incorporated into Israel. She does indeed get connected to Israel's God and she has a rather famous 
great-grandson whose name begins with D and I'm named after him. She's the great-grandmother of the great King David. So, I love this. And she shows up again much later in another genealogy in Matthew. Which means that our Savior Jesus is part Moabite. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Okay, it's, it's an amazing thought. Our Savior is multi-ethnic. I, I just love that. Okay, these are eternal blessings that we give you. All kinds of you know, Psalm one forty-seven or Psalm forty-seven. Uh, that let the nations come and worship. The, the door is open. First uh, Kings eight, when Solomon dedicates the newly built temple, he prays and he says to the Lord, he says, and if. A Gentile comes from far away because he's heard of the greatness of your name. I'm asking you will hear that Gentile's prayer and answer him. They were welcomed to come to the temple. And that's why Jesus, when he drives the money changers out of the temple, he said this place was supposed to be, from the get-go, it was supposed to be meant to be a house of prayer for whom? all the nations Yet Solomon saw that Jesus enforced it later so Abraham is God's answer to the mess created by Adam that's how the big picture begins to fit together Abraham and Christ who comes from him that's God's answer to the mess created by Adam God refuses to give back to turn his back on his world finally He refuses to give up on his world. Finally, this is how we see the world. We can smile at the future. That's a great statement. I know that's in Proverbs, and I think it applies mainly to women in its original context, but I have hijacked it and applied it to me because I need to be able to smile at the future. This is how we see the world. We can smile at the future, and we, this really plays out in its most vivid fashion at the very, very end of the age, at the end of the story. In the very one, one of the concluding climactic visions that God that God gives John in the book of Revelation, he sees all that's gone before is now going to come to a halt and then get renewed. Then I saw. That's a phrase that comes up again and again and again in the book of Revelation. Then I saw. What's he see this time? It's almost at the end of the book, which means it's almost at the end of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven, and what's the next phrase? And a new earth. Yes, I hope we all believe that. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're going to get imperishable physical bodies. Okay, We will not, not, not be disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds. We're going to live on a renewed physical planet. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, I'm not going to drink this wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. Well, if, if we're going to be able to sit down with the Savior and drink wine, we must, we're going to be physical people. That's proof right there. Okay? God's going to physically renew His physical world. It was physical in the beginning. It's going to be physical again at the end. There's going to be a tree, Revelation 22 too. Pardon me. There's going to be a, a city, I meant to say, In the middle of the city, there's going to be a river and there's going to be a tree, a tree of life. Does that sound vaguely familiar? (laughs) A garden, a river, a tree. It's called the tree of life. Now here is why I mentioned a few minutes ago that God created the nations 
Psalm 86, 9, he promised that all the nations he has made will come and worship before him. I, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. All the, I love those banners we have downstairs. The flags of the nations and the, the gateways motto at the front of all, every nation, every generation. Is that how it reads? That's profoundly biblical and profoundly hope-giving when we see it. The, the tree is there to produce leaves. <laughs> okay, most trees are. What is the purpose of the leaves? to provide healing for the nations. Now I know the end times, there's all different interpretations of how this is all going to precisely play out, but this is crystal clear. The nations are going to come and they're going to get healed because God refuses to give up on his world. There's going to be in some fashion, I would argue, a renewing of culture. There's going to be nations. Nations, that's a cultural thing. There's going to be a city. A city is a cultural thing. There's going to be gates. There's going to be walls. There's going to be streets. And these kings from the nations, the the, the nations themselves are represented by their kings. In the last closing verses of Revelation 21, I believe it is, we see these kings and the nations they represent coming into this glorious city. The, The gates are never shut. They're always open. And what are they bringing into the city? They're bringing the glory and the honor of the nations. We can smile at the future. The dead are going to be raised. We will worship directly in the presence of God forever and ever. The good guys win. Let me just close with one teeny little thing. We're going to wrap up. We have questions if you want. Some of you know Velma and I lost a daughter about 30-some years ago to cancer. And one of my precious, precious, precious hopes, I still, two or three times a week, it hits, comes back again. She's been going for 30-some years. And it always hits, uh, even to this day. But you know what? If you believe that God's going to win in the end, that we can smile at the future, God's going to have the last word, the healing of the nations, all that, that means I get my daughter back. Do you believe that? The dead are going to be raised. Let's go through these once more and then we have time we can chat a wee bit. But this is how we see the world. God made it and He made it for His glory. It's, it's a witness, it's a pageant, it's a choir. He rules His world through His rulers, His divinely appointed rulers, His image bearers. That's you when you get up in the morning and go to work. That's you when you do your work here in the church. The reason we know longer live in the garden is because we've rebelled. But even outside the garden, just like God ministered to Eve by giving her Seth, God will meet you. Like he just like he met her. This is how we see the world. Why everything hasn't completely gone to pieces because God is committed. He's got Satan and sin and death on a leash. It's restrained. That's why the rules of algebra still work. That's why there's social order, because God has mercy on his world. This is how we see the world. Abraham and this great promise of twofold blessing, food for starving Egyptians through a descendant of Abraham, and a gospel that will save us from eternal death through Jesus. And this is how we see the world. We can smile at the future, because we're going to live in renewed bodies on a renewed earth. Is that good news? Amen.